You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Guys, hello everybody and welcome to the Nailed It podcast. My name is Dr. Wendell Cole and I have my co-host here, Dr. Jay Fitz. And we are both orthopedic surgery interns and we created this this podcast to go over current orthopedic topics you know we're gonna have orthopedic surgeons on here we're gonna have reps we're gonna have a lot of different people on here and this this podcast is is for residents it's gonna be for medical students as well as attending so please subscribe to this channel and definitely to get your uh, orthopedic knowledge uh up now I'm with uh, Dr. Uh, Jay Fitz, and uh, have you have you seen the new Avengers? Have I seen the new Avengers? You okay? So let's go ahead and get this out there. Something y'all can know about me. There's only a few things I'm more passionate about than orthopedics, and Marvel comics just <laughs> happen to be one of them. So uh, I've seen the Avengers movies about three times now, Man, sir. Three times. Three times, and Look, I might go again. Did you did you check it out in Dolby? You know they have when the seats vibrate and. And you know all that you, stuff. You got to get the IMAX. You got to do the Man. 3D at least one of those times. I can't do it all all, all three times because you know. Man, see, I don't want to ruin this for the people listening to it. But but by by the time this comes out, they they probably should have seen the Avengers, right? Uh, if not, you are a bad person. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we need you in this field. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh God, go ahead and tell them about today's guest. Dr. Oh Chris. yeah, we have a we have a great one in store for you today. Uh, we have Dr. Gary Stewart from Resurgence Orthopedics. Uh, he did his residency at Drexel University, and he did his fellowship with Stephen Conti. Uh, and, and today we have him talking about ankle fractures. And we kind of dive all the way into ankle fractures. We talk about what you're looking for on physical exams, x-rays, radiographs, the different type of x-rays to get. We talk about classifications, non-operative versus operative treatment, and we also talk about surgical approaches. So guys, sit back, listen, and you know, without further ado, go ahead and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Gary Stewart. All right. Uh, welcome, everybody, to episode one. You're actually our first guest here, Dr. Stewart. Uh, thank you so much for Spring 94 for, <laughs> for coming <laughs> on the show. Um, and we, I'm, so I'm with, my name is Wendell Cole, and I have my co-host here. Jamal Fitz. And uh, we're, we're going to do our first episode with Dr. Stewart. We're going to talk about ankle fractures. Now, um, we actually have some questions that we wanted to, sure, to start shoot, out. Sure, you know, We love starting off, kind of getting to know our guests before Absolutely. we hop into everything. Yep. So I'll let Jamal ask, ask this question. Yeah, I think this one's a pretty good one, Dr. Stewart. Uh, a lot of residents probably kind of trying to figure their way, way out through orthopedics and trying to see mm-hmm. which route they want to go. Yep. Uh, so just for you, what, how did you get to choose your subspecialty and in, in ankle? Well, that's a great question uh, because many people always ask me, why do I went, why did I go into foot and ankle, you know? Well, just like everybody else, um, I thought I probably wanted to be a sports doc. You know, I played <laughs> football in college and I tore my ACL and the first uh, orthopedic surgeon uh, showed me how he was going to fix up my knee and I was like, man, this is cool. This is what I want to do. So I became focused on doing orthopedics. I mean, I walked into medical school, you know, wanting to do orthopedics. And so as I got into the field, I was like, man, this is really great. And then I did a rotation out in Pittsburgh with uh, Stephen Conte, who ended up being my fellowship director. And, you know, I kind of was like, wow, why are you doing foot and ankle? And he's like, well, it's different every day. 
you know, after a while, and I always call sports docs sports miracle doctors, you know, but you don't have to walk on your hands, okay? So um, every day I come in, it goes from reconstructive, it's trauma, it's sports related, you know, and I just, you know, there's a million ways to fix a bunion, you know, and so I just, I get bored. I mean, I have a little ADD as well as OCD, all the Ds. And yeah, and so I get bored, you know, and I really do appreciate someone who does a good rotator cuff. And I appreciate the guys who do good ACLs because they did it on me. Um, But I just couldn't see myself doing the same operation every day. Now they'll say it's not the same operation every day. (laughs) But, you know, for me in my experience, in my worldview, I wanted something that would challenge me every day. And believe me, foot and ankle does. I mean, you deal with medical comorbidities. It's, it's constantly changing. I'm also a practical guy. I realized I probably wanted to live in, a, in close to a city. I grew up near Philadelphia. Uh, go Eagles. And, um, oh, yeah, I know you're happy now. I am yeah. real happy about that. <laughs> oh, you see that? Yeah, yeah I'm I happy that. all day. Yeah, and uh, so I, I knew that I probably wanted to be either in or close to a metropolitan area. And I also know that um, there's a lot of orthopedic surgeons out there. And the sports field has a lot of people that like to do that. We all kind of think the same way. And I figured I like foot and ankle. At the time, there weren't a lot of foot and ankle surgeons out there. I'm practical. I want to have a job, right? I mean, so I was like, man, I like this field. There's not a lot of people going into the field. All the people in the AOFAS were really friendly and cool. And I said, hey, that's my specialty. Hey, man, now you're here, man, because it's crazy. We actually rotated with you. and yeah, mm-hmm. you, Strong you students. Knowledge. Very good. Very knowledgeable guys. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and the second question that I have for you is, um, do you have a quote that you live your life by? I do. I do. Well, you guys can tell that I'm very sh- relatively short of stature, and I did play college football. And so my dad used to always tell me as I maybe be a little bit nervous about getting out there that it's not the size of the dog in the fight, but it's the size of the fight in the dog. And believe me, every day you're going to need that internal dog to kind of get you moving because it's challenging you know life is challenging in general eventually you guys if you don't already you're going to have a family um you know you're going to be taking care of people and everybody i operate on i truly take it to heart i mean you are trusting me to open up your body and fix you i mean that is mind-blowing if you really think about it yeah 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 that's, that's that's great i love it um and, and one last thing, so we want to kind of just do a do a one-liner before mm-hmm. we go in, right? Like, you know, you go into a hospital and you're rounding on patients and you have a mm-hmm. one-liner. Mm-hmm. So, for example, my, mine may be a uh, 24-year-old male about to start orthopedic surgery, loves to travel, uh-huh. loves to be with family and friends. Right. Uh-huh. Jay, what might, what might be yours? Oh, man. 27-year-old about to go into orthopedic surgery, like uh, enjoy family, big foodie, big nerd. I love my uh, comic book movies, and that's, that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, well, I guess, uh, you know... I guess I could go and say my age. I'm a 43-year-old orthopedic surgeon uh, who loves his family, loves God, and uh, enjoys what he does and uh, lives life to the fullest every day. Great. Awesome. Great. I love it. So uh, kind of what we want to do now is kind of switch gears and get mm-hmm. into the this ankle fracture. Let's do it. Everybody wants to kind of Let's do it. talk That's about. And uh, what we want to do is kind of start off like a somewhat like a little case presentation, right? Great. So we have here, say... A 56-year-old obese woman comes to the ER. Mm-hmm. She had a ground-level fall, and she's complaining about ankle pain. And orthopedics are consulted. Kind of walk us through 
what what would be the next steps? You know, as you the well, I think one of the one of the most major things, as you you know, you were talking about being in a hospital setting, is always remember that you are a doctor. So you always start everything with your history and physical, and so you have to look into uh, past medical history. You know, if that person has a medical comorbidity like diabetes, that's going to change your approach. Past surgical history, whatever they've injured on their ankle, are there other incisions surrounding the wound? Um, you know, you got to do your run through your whole history, and in terms of your physical, actually do the exam. I can't tell you how many times I've followed up on folks, and I won't say any names, where I'm like, they couldn't have possibly done an exam because now it's hours later, and I see that it's an open fracture. Um, and so, definitely remember you're a doctor. Remember what you learned in medical school. History and physical will give you the majority of what you need. So, so for ankle fractures, what necessarily? What are the things that we want? We want to key in on and, uh, and not miss. Right. So we talked about making sure you go through your history and we can jump to physical examination. You want to look at the skin. Number one, uh, you're going to look and see if there's any blisters any if there's any uh, incisions that look like it could not incisions, but lacerations that look like it can communicate with bone. And, you know, if there's any exposed bone, uh, you're going to make sure that you get your imaging studies. You know, in an ankle, you need to get at least three views, your AP, your lateral, and your mortise view. If you don't have three views, you have an incomplete radiographic evaluation. And so then you want to look and see if you think this is a surgical case or not. So when you're going back, make sure you check out your skin. Is there blisters? Um, is there a lot of swelling? Is there any lacerations or anything that could be dangerous? And then you're going to get your x-rays. You're going to take a look at your x-rays, your three views. And then from there, you're going to use your training and see if it's stable. Also, you got to make sure that the, if they're neurovascularly intact, you know, you want to make sure that you check your pulses. You know, make sure that you, their sensation is there. You want to make sure you do a motor exam. And so you have to do all those things and make sure you document before you start trying to jump to whether you're going to do surgery or not. Right. So, so if we can kind of rewind a little bit and, and, and focus in on, I guess we can talk about the x-rays. Mm -hmm. So the different x-rays... How they're, how they're taken and then yes. what you're looking for on each one. Right. So your AP is a standard, uh, you have your ankle in neutral, and then you're getting just a straight kind of head-on uh, view of the ankle joint. Your AP, you're going to have approximately 25 degrees of internal rotation of the ankle. And that's actually your real AP of the ankle joint, if you think about it, because the um, talus has some ro internal rotation. So you have, to, you have to do that, change that rotation, take that rotation out, and that'll give you your ankle itself. And then you're going to take your lateral. And so the most useful of all these to me, is usually the mortise view. And um, you have to have all three, but the, the mortise view is where you're going to look for your medial, medial clear space, and you're going to look for, uh, uh, you're going to end up looking for your tib-fib clear space. Uh, and so those are all things that are going to give you some info into maybe the stability of the ankle, whether maybe the deltoid or the syndesmotic ligaments are involved. Uh, your lateral, you're going to take a look at your posterior malleoli. You're going to see if you look, if there's a fracture in that area, in the posterior aspect of the fibula, if there's any uh, any uh, displacement there. And so then again, you're starting to get your mind into what you're going to do uh, surgically. And uh, in, in those type cases, at what point, and also how would you go about go doing uh, stress views? Mm -hmm. 
And that's great. So you go and you get your regular views. And you're like, man, that looks a little bit funny. And so we do. I do either a gravity stretch view, which is easiest in the office, and where the patient kind of lays on the side, and you look at the fibula and see if the fibula distracts with the gravity uh, pulling the ankle down. And you have to really kind of train your X-ray techs to get. Uh, the proper view of the ankle so you can see if there's any displacement Um, or you can do an external rotation test and that's usually something you have to do with the patient in some form of anesthesia because that'll hurt obviously if they have a fibular fracture and you're checking to see if there's any widening of your tib fib clear space or um, your or widening of your medial clear space there so so just to just to I guess get make sure I have this down right mm-hmm. for for when the patient's laying on the table. Say mm-hmm. for example, they they have a fracture of the right ankle. Mm-hmm. You want to get this the gravity view. Mm-hmm. They'll be laying with their right hip facing the table, yes. and that's exactly just, right. Yes, sir. And their uh, I guess their just from their ankle will be hanging off mm-hmm. uh, off the edge of the table. Yes, and it's just the gravity is just putting in that external rotation. That's right. It's putting the stress on it. Now, is there any certain amount of degrees of external rotation we want to we want to necessarily get with the stress view, or are we just looking? You're gonna just see if it if it moves, if you have widening of your medial clear space or if that tib-fib space opens up, you're just going to look and see if it opens up. And so you're looking at the numbers, right? So all of you guys know that your medial clear space needs to be less than or equal to four millimeters. And if you're looking at your tib-fib clear space, it needs to be less than or equal six millimeters. And that's on your mortise view. Great. And so what I, what I wanted to also do is so once we have our x-rays you know we have our we have an ap mortise in our in our lateral mm-hmm. and we look and then now there's all different classifications we we're kind of having a conversation before this yes. started on, on different classifications yes. of um of ankle fractures right can you kind of take us through well what i would say is and all of my residents know and all orthopedic surgeons have their different ways of rep- uh, approaching things and i'm the last one to say that i have everything perfect but i'm not a big classification guy i think that the inner and intra-observable reliability on some of the classifications aren't necessarily as high as you like. Now, I, th- I agree that when you're at some conferences, you want to maybe know your AO, conference, AO classifications. To be honest with you, whenever I'm going to a conference and I have a fracture I'm presenting, I always have to go back and make sure that I'm looking at what, what the AO classification of that is. You also have your Logie Hansen classification. That is based on kind of the mechanism of injury of an ankle fracture. And and in some cases now, I'm sure there's some people that really like the Logie Hansen classification. I'm not a big proponent of it. I believe in uh, more recently it's kind of been debunked. Uh, but I think that in terms of the Logie Hansen classification, the supination adduction would be something that I'd look for because that gives you your vertical shear on the tibia, and that'll change the way you may fixation, fix that uh, tibia fracture on your medial mal. Um, my favorite is the Weber, and that's probably the, the favorite of every intern <laughs> resident fellow in the world. Yes, definitely. Yes, uh, we all love, or Weber, I mean, I'm not German, so we'll go Weber. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, your Weber A's, which are below the uh, ankle mortise, uh, Weber B, which is at the ankle mortise, and Weber C, which is above. And to, believe, and to tell you the truth, I think if you're going to look at a classification scheme and you want to be able to communicate, then that's probably the best one because everyone basically knows that you can have a general idea of it. And if someone gets off of it a little bit and doesn't really know it that well, uh, it's kind of hard to miss A, B, and C. You know, when you start talking about Logie Hansen, I think that's just, you know, pimp fodder. 
you know right. you really look it up and you you know you've got your second year resident probably was doesn't know that and you know you kind of make them want to read when they don't know it um, but I think it's important to know that those exist you know, uh, to at least, you know, historically, in my opinion, for the Logie Hansen. And it's impressive when someone can rattle it off. And I get a general idea of the mechanism of injury. But I'm a Weber A, B, C, and we can work from there. Um, and this is kind of a side question. Me and Cody was actually talking about this mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, at what point would you start considering these fractures? Uh, you would consider them like a pilon fracture. Right. Well, a pilon fracture is uh, a damage to the articular surface of the tibial plafon. It's a tibial plafon injury, and they tend to be from an impaction type injury. And so think of it in articular. And yes, technically a medial mal fracture is in articular, but it's it's the it's the mechanism of action to me that's making it a pilon fracture. Um, and if you look at that supination adduction, uh, you know, it has an impaction component. So uh, that's, I would say, on a spectrum of that. And, and one of the interesting things that, that we were talking about, actually right before this started, mm-hmm. because both of us before we were coming, we were like, man, our foot is an actual supination and then mm-hmm. we get a deduction. Mm-hmm. And I, really quickly, and maybe for people who can visualize this if they're, if they're listening, mm-hmm. can you kind of go over that, like the position of your foot in, you know, in these different uh, in these different classifications or these different mechanisms. Right. So if you're thinking of uh, uh, your supination adduction, you've got to think it's a rotational type injury. And so usually um, the foot is planted in all of these. And so the f- whenever we're describing them, we kind of are acting like we have our ankle model and we're showing the resident in space. When in actuality, the best thing to do, um, and I've seen a kind of an interesting uh, research that was done on, I think it was a YouTube videos, where they showed different mechanisms of injury on that. Now that's the way to look at it when the person comes down. Or on a football field when the foot is planted and there's a rotation where there's an external rotation of the foot, but the foot is really an almost internal rotation of the tibia. And then the other one would be an external rotation of the tibia, but the foot's still planted, but we describe it as an internal rotation of the foot. So I would think that it probably would be best to be on video. That would be almost impossible, I think, on a podcast to really do. Because <laughs> you can't, it's like, you're like, what is this fool talking about? So I think right, that right, right. Uh, that is something on video that I think you probably, if you're listening to this, you probably should take a look on a video for that. And what, what are different types of, um, the different types of, I guess, angle fractures, right? Because you have trimalleolar, bimalleolar, you might have like avulsion. Like what, if you, just in general, can you just kind of quickly talk about the different types of right. fractures? Right. So if you, we have our bimalleolar ankle fractures, which obviously are from, well, you know, let's start from the beginning. Let's start, say, just a fibula fracture, um, where you may have a fracture of the lateral malleolus, where there's a fracture line going through it. You can have um a displaced fracture, um, such as your Weber B's, A's, and C's. And when we talk about avulsion fractures, quite commonly we're thinking of like one of those ankle sprains where you see a little uh, bit of the fibula that comes off. And so that tends to be more of a sprain, doesn't require operative fixation. You have your fibular fractures, as I was saying, that go through the fibula and they're displaced. And they have to be, in my opinion, to do surgery on either unstable, where you have the movement on our external rotation or gravity stress test, or displaced by about two millimeters. Or you have your bimalleolar equivalent in which you have your fibula that's, fibula that's injured. However, you have a deltoid injury, 
All right. And so as you guys are coming up, probably through your training, you'll see that the deltoid is becoming more and more repaired. We never repaired it when I was in training. And now I am beginning to repair it based on what I'm seeing in some of our AOFAS courses and the AOS courses. Then you have your trimalleolar ankle fractures. Now, let me go back. Bimalleolar ankle fractures are talked about bimalle equivalent because you have medial instability over your deltoid. And then you just frankly have your bimalleolar ankle fracture where two of your three malleoli are fractured. So your malleolus consists of your fibula, your medial mal, and your posterior mal. And so you can have a bimal that's a fibula and a posterior mal. Uh, and, and so that's where you can't just think of your bimalleolar ankle fracture as medial lateral because a bimal, a posterior, is, and we find, are finding is very important to the stability of a fracture. Um, and then you have your trimal, which all three of them are injured. And so what becomes important than that is how are you going to fix it? Right, right, perfectly. And then I was uh, alluding to what my uh, co-host here, Jamal, was talking about. So how do we know what to fix versus non-operative? Well, non-operative treatment tends to be an isolated lateral malleolar fracture without medial malleolar involvement. Now, those indications to fix those uh, are based on stability. So you have to do your stress tests. And if you really, truly just have an isolated fibula that's minimally displaced and appears to be stable and is not moving on any of the tests we described, then you can treat them in a cast. I think sometimes people operate on them and maybe they feel like they can get more uh, early mobilization. Uh, but really, an isolated fibular fracture that the other structures are stable, you don't, you don't necessarily need to do anything surgically for. Does this matter whether it's a Weber A, B, or C or, or just any uh, any? Well, it's an isolated fracture with two millimeters or less of displacement. Okay. So if you have a fibular fracture that has two millimeters or less of displacement, it's not surgical in my book. But that is controversial. I mean, that is not hard and fast because I have had some that look to be minimally uh, displaced. Maybe there's some medial clear space widening, and I look at the patient. I'm like, this person is younger and is going to be trying to move, and I I maybe want to mobilize them faster. Or this person is 90 and can likely do well uh, with no surgery so and or medical comorbidities and as far as the non-op treatment is it usually a uh, a boot and i guess for about how long do you usually have them in it and i believe that this is probably again uh, style points for the doc i tend to try to put people in casts right uh, uh, for at least two weeks i do that uh, as much as for their mentality as stability to fracture because a, a good air cast boot fitted appropriately is in my opinion as good as a cast and I believe uh, there's literature out there to support that however if you there's I always kind of make a joke and I hope your listeners don't think I'm blaspheming that is not my intent but I always <laughs> swear that Jesus if you had an air cast boot and you told him not to walk on it we'll walk on that thing I'm telling you I mean it's just it's something about the treads it's something about the fact that it's a boot and so I always throw them in a cast and I kind of say hey you've got a fracture here if you don't want surgery don't walk on it and something about a cast will keep people off of it or at least not trying to do as much on it and then I'll transition them into a boot and in general at about six weeks um, I will let them weight bear, but it all depends on a weight bearing x-ray that I get in the office. And if it looks, if it's that unstable, then you need to fix it. And so if I'm going to go conservative and their uh, lateral malleolus fracture with 
two millimeters or less displacement. And then, you know, I get a weight bearing x-ray at two or three weeks and it looks like it's starting to drift. And everyone that takes care of ankle fractures, they can start seeing that drift. You start seeing it look like, is that medial, is that medial clear space widening? And the next week, like, is it? And then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, it is. And now you're like, doggone, I should have just put a plate on that thing. So about six weeks to answer your question. Okay, so so one of the non-operative indications are isolated fibular fractures with two millimeters with two or less displacement. Less displacement. What other are there any other um, non-operative but, indications? Well, I mean, if there's if there is maybe a slight medial mount avulsion type fracture, but in my hands, if you have a medial malleolus fracture, you really have to start looking at the mechanism of injury and what other injuries may occur. And there are some people that may throw a medial mal in a cast but in this day and age i mean when you can put you know i think you should put screws in there because you have that joint fluid that can end up bathing uh the uh the area of fracture and maybe not letting you get your uh your fracture healing you can also get little flaps of periosteum in the fracture side on the medial mouth and so and sometimes i have someone that is a minimally displaced medial mouth and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and open this up. And there's no doubt there's always some periosteum that has flipped down and I got to push out. Um, and it's just or it's just not really as minimally displaced as I thought it was. And so I really believe, you know, for non-operatively, that's really the indications. Now, operatively, and that's what we're talking about. I mean, that's why we got in this game, right? You get to cut people open and fix them. So, you know, bimalleolar ankle fractures are operative. Bimalleolar uh, uh, equivalent, like I had mentioned earlier, with a lateral mal and a, um, a deltoid injury. Um, you've got your trimalleolar ankle fractures, and you've got your unstable syndesmotic injuries, right? I mean, you can have a syndesmotic injury without necessarily having a, a pure fracture. Although, if you look, there's probably some fracture somewhere. Or open. If you have an open ankle fracture, you got to do something about it. got to wash that out and then, you know, provide some hardware in there. Okay. And, and I guess, can we just kind of go over some of the... Uh, different options you might use as far as hardware for those different types of fractures as well? Great question. And so if we're talking about a fibular fracture, we are talking about, you know, traditionally you can go laterally, just make a straight lateral incision, get down the bone, make sure you avoid any branches of the superficial perineal nerve, don't create any subcutaneous flaps, you find your fracture line, you clean that up a little bit, and then maybe you could throw a lag screw and then you can put uh, a lateral plate. Or you can do a posterior approach. The posterior approach is supposed to be more stable. Um, it's called an anti-glide technique where you go posteriorly and you put a plate posteriorly to provide fixation. Now, that has less hardware prominence because you're going posteriorly, but it also has been seen to have some perineal irritation. And then if you go straight laterally, it's not the strongest of construct like an anti-glide plate might be, uh, but the um, hardware is less uh, uh, if you go laterally, the hardware is more palpable, and then you may have to remove it. So there's there's cons and pros, and really it amounts to what you're more more comfortable with, and sometimes and often the fracture pattern. Uh, medially, if you have say it's just a, a straight bimal, and you've got um, uh, uh, you know one of your SERs or something like that, and you've got that medial mal, then you just you know you can open it up, um, put. Uh, two screws in, you can do a tension band technique, you know, K wires and a tension band, or you can put, you know, depending on a fracture fragment, some people may even be, uh, put a washer in with a screw and think that that's okay, you know, because a screw is really kind of a small plate, 
I'm sorry, washer, excuse me, is really a small plate. And so that's what some people do. And so that's a way to maybe go about your medial mile. Posteriorly, um, we used to kind of do a thing where you do a reduction and you make yourself feel good with the medial mile reduction or your fibular reduction specifically. And you say, oh, it's stable. Well, yeah, we're finding out that it's nice to go in there and open up and rigidly fix it, maybe with a small plate um, or uh, screws. And so you want to get rigid fixation posteriorly because it's shown that if you fix posterior malleolus and the um, ligaments are there, um, that gives you your syndesmotic stability. So those are some ways to go about it. Of course, you know, you could open up, we all open up a book and look it up, but you know. It's always good to be running and uh, maybe in your car and listen to some orthopedics, too. There we go. It sounds perfect. Uh, now, let me ask you this. something Because this is something that's coming. I'm sure you see it all the time. Mm -hmm. How would the treatment plan change if this patient had uh, diabetes? Oh, man. You guys have done your homework. I love it. Not making it easy on me. And so, you know, diabetes is an epidemic in this country. I mean, it seems like every other person I see has diabetes. And so when I, let's go back a little bit and talk about your physical examination. You know, uh, you want to do your uh, Symes-Weinstein monofilament. You know, you want to have your 10-gram or your 5.07 Symes-Weinstein monofilament. And that allows you to know if that person has protective sensation. So that's something that's part of your physical exam. It should be when you're examining foot and ankle. But if you're going to have a, diabe a diabetic, you ha tend to be more aggressive with your fixation. There's an idea that because that person's a diabetic and maybe they may have some wound complications that maybe you can treat it non-operatively. That's the exact opposite. You need to be more aggressive. In fact, you need to provide more fixation. Some trans-syndesmotic screws, not necessarily to fix the syndesmosis, but to give you more uh, points of fixation. Um, you know, people are putting their quadricortical screws in. Some people will put their uh, medial mouth malleolar screws that they put in and put them all the way to the lateral portion of the tibia. Um, and you just got to be keep them off of it longer. So a good rule of thumb is to keep them off of it for twice as long as you would be somebody else. And in, in those cases, um, how do you sometimes, if it comes up, I know it's something that you don't want to deal with, mm -hmm. but uh, if that patient end up uh, getting a, an infection or uh, some sort of non-union. Mm -hmm. How do you usually go about that as well? Well, I was trained by some good people, and they always told me not to put your head in the sand. I mean, it's real easy to do surgery, and then there's a diabetic, and there's some drainage, and it's, you're like, you know, you, you, you kind of throw them on some antibiotics and hope it's an A-OK. -okay. Well, no. If you get an infection, go in and wash it out, clean it out as soon as possible. Hopefully, you'll be able to salvage the case. If you get a non-union, maybe you didn't provide enough fixation. Also, you got to take a step back. It was that patient, you know, metabolically optimized? What's their vitamin D? What's their calcium? Do they have uh, any infection? So you get your CRP, your SED rate, your CBC, with a CBC, excuse me, with a manual diff. Um, was that check their albumin? Is their albumin enough? Do they have a, a their protein levels? You know, you check their lymphocytes. You know, and so you're looking at all of those things um, to make sure that you've properly optimized the patient, especially if it's a non-union. You know, because was it a failure of fixation? Um, was it the patient, you know, uh, uh, in terms of having the building blocks to heal? Is there an infection? So those are things you have to look at, you know. It's, hey, this is, you know, there's a reason why we get informed consent. And if you look at those informed consents, you see all kinds of risks in there. And you really need to tell your patients that those are risks because 
all too often. I don't know if it's the medical shows that we have now where somebody's got a P-Lon fracture and they have an X-Fix on one week. Then the next week they're playing a game. You're like, whoa, he's running already? You know, so I think that, you know, patients, you have to manage the expectations. Mm-hmm. That's actually, that's perfect. Uh, that, that's kind of leading into one of my next questions. Mm-hmm. What is the, just the overall, maybe not in the di- diabetic patient, just the, the average patient that just, mm-hmm. you deal with this with, what's the type of prognosis we're looking for, uh, you know, with the, the complications they might deal with, uh, time to back to driving, different things like that? Those are all great questions. So number one, what I always tell the patient is that the ankle will never be the same. It's never the same. There's always some form of cartilage damage uh, to the area. And as you guys go and read some of your basic science, you'll see that. Um, and it's been shown to really help the patient. Now, you've got to fix it. You know, it's going to be ATF. It's got to be anatomic. You know, it's got to be there. And, you know, it's the fixation has got to be there. So I think it's AFT, actually, but I won't say the F. But um, everyone, I think, knows what that is. You got to get it perfect because it's been shown if you have even one millimeter of displacement, that increases the contact forces in the ankle leading to arthritis. So you got to fix it right. And so in general, my protocol is, and again, everyone will fix, you know, fix the gumbo differently. You know, mine is I operate on you and I see you about 10 to 14 days. We check your incision. If it looks good we take out the sutures um we have the long conversation about the boot or the cast because i would rather put you in a boot um so that you could start having range of motion but if you're going to tell me you're not going to be able to do it and uh just just knowing my patient population i won't let you i'll put you in a cast for four weeks after that um now there are studies that show that you can weight bear and it's just that you, you just have to be careful as a physician what you tell a patient if you tell them they can weight bear in their mind they're like oh i could start shooting ball you know what i mean that's what right. the people think so at six weeks then we start really getting it on you know we put you i'm putting you in a boot i'm telling you get your motion and most people will get all their motion back um by about three months i tell them that they'll probably be walking in a regular shoe but it takes really a full year for your ankle to be that way and people are just shocked i'll see people at three months like my ankle's still sore and i'm like well you broke your ankle and all too often as orthopedic surgeons we fixate on the well we allow the patient to fixate on the bone because we have an x-ray and they see the broken bone but what i always try to tell them is that in order for that bone to be broken you've had to injure some of the soft tissues and that really hits home with them and then they really can get into their physical therapy with that yeah now, now, not to rewind, but I guess I, I'm going to rewind a little bit, and because I was just looking here at this, um, at, at some notes that we wrote down. Now, when you're when you're going in for you know operative mm-hmm. um, fixation of not operative fixation, but when you're going in and operate on these different mm-hmm. on these different fractures, is there a certain order that you that you um, that you approach the fractures in? Like, if you have a fibular fracture plus a medial mal and a absolutely, mal. absolutely. And I want to make sure we get to talk about the syndesmosis too. So we'll talk right. about that. But um, I generally will start laterally. I'll start laterally. I'll try to get my fibula, fix the fibula, because that'll give me the length that I need um, for for the for the ankle fracture. And quite commonly, if you have uh, you know basic ankle fracture, once you get that fibula out the length and you have rigid fixation there, you know the medial mal kind of finds its position. Now you still have got, in my opinion, have to open it up, look at that shoulder portion, make sure there's no impaction. You want to make sure there's no periosteum flipped in there. Um, if you are having trouble laterally. 
quite commonly the deltoid may be stuck in the joint, especially if it's one of those bimal equivalents and you don't really have a medial mouth fracture and the deltoid's torn, it may be flipped up in there. And so if I see a wide medial clear space and I know that there's been some injury, I may sometimes start medially and I'll flip that deltoid out of there and then I'll, uh, now I repair the deltoid. Uh, if it's a really calm, minuted, um, and for those that don't know a whole lot about uh, orthopedic shed, if it's one that has a lot of fractured pieces in there on the fibula, it's sometimes hard to judge your length. And so I'll go in medially first and get that medial fixation. And so that and uh, that'll get sometimes your de- your talus underneath the tibia in a good position and give you an idea of what you may need to do laterally. And so that'll be a case I'd start medially. Uh, sometimes if there's a bad posterior mouth fracture, I will go with a posterior approach and then I'll uh, go to the posterior mouth and I'll get that reduced. That helps get your fibula out the length. And then I'll fix the fibula with that anti-glide technique if I'm able to. And so that would be a case where I would pick each malleoli and do it first at some point in time. Uh, now, do you operate on every posterior malleolar fracture or is there a certain threshold? Right. So... I do not operate on every posterior mouth fracture. There was a, a movement and still may be in some circles where it's like every little ditzel we'd fix because fe- we were finding out that the, you know, the PITFL is uh, the strongest portion of the syndesmosis. And so you have to get that in alignment so that it also helps the stability of the syndesmosis. But, you know, in general, the rule is 25 percent. If the posterior mal is more than 25%, you, pro- you need to fix it. Also, I, what I have to find to be more accurate is a posterior stress view. I mean, you're in there. You've got the x-ray. You're looking on a lateral. Try to stress it. If it's unstable and it's opening up, then, you know, you got to go back there and fix it. I'm fixing more and more now than I, I have before for those reasons of stability of the ankle. And so, yes, 25% or instability would okay. be the test answer, but we're fixing more and more posterior mouth fractures. Okay. And, and I would love to wrap this up by having you talk about the syndesmosis. Good, and good. Just kind of letting you. But a syndesmosis, we're finding more and more the importance of it. And, you know, uh, the big question is, yeah, shoot, we get that fibula at the length. We fix that medial mal. Uh, so what about the syndesmosis? Interoperatively, you may do your cotton test and stress it or another external rotation test and say you have some widening of that syndesmosis. How do you fix it? And so if you have a posterior mal fracture, some of the best things you could do for yourself would probably be to go ahead and fix that posterior mal. Um, if the syndesmosis is unstable and there's no posterior mal, it's just frank syndesmotic injury, you could put two screws across the syndesmosis. The thing you have to, or one, um, it's just that you have to get it. it, it, it the fixation is important, but we're finding that the reduction of the fibula into the um, incisura is the most important portion. And so what we were finding is that you would, we were thinking we were just kind of fixing it, but sometimes you actually have to open up the syndesmosis, you know, remove any soft tissue from there to make sure you get a good reduction. And the way to fix it, you know, I've been trying to figure this out, looked at a bunch of studies. And to me, it really seems that you have to have your anatomic reduction of the syndesmosis to be important. Whether you go with, um, uh, some suture techniques, since we want to try to keep you guys out of trouble with any proprietary names, um, okay. any suture button techniques or screws. Um, I think it's I tend to do the suture button techniques now because I kind of feel like the fibula may kind of work its way into the right position. And when you fix it with screws, it, it, it's a rigid fixation. And so 
I kind of think that the the suture button probably gives you an ability to kind of get that fixation in there and kind of work its way in. Um, and you don't have to remove it, but it's costlier. Uh, but whether you use one screw, two screws, um, quadricortical, tricortical, t- uh, suture button techniques, you just have to get it reduced. And it's very important. You can't let the syndesmosis go or you've, you've done a disservice to your patient. Remember, they trusted you to fix them. Perfect. Uh, Jamal, do you have any, anything else you want to cover? Actually, you know what? I actually do. I have one quick question because right. it was something I saw when I was doing rotations that I thought was kind of neat. I've never actually seen one in person. I just kind of saw the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on the, the ankle? I think it's ankle replacement. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we definitely, I mean, you know, that we do them and I do them. Uh, I think it's a, at this point, it is a reasonable technique. In a, and we've, we've gotten to the point where it is a good technique for someone with end-stage ankle arthritis. There are some that are very aggressive, and there are some that are less aggressive with it. But we're slowly – we always say ankle fusion is the gold standard. However, how many of us want our ankles fused? And it's to the point now there's a lot of ankles on the market. I think you just have to get comfortable with it. And it's and because and everything has complications, but I, I believe we've managed that to a point yet now. Ten year survivorship is at a good position now. So I think that people always like to ask me at courses, would I do that on my family member? In fact, they asked me at the course we had here a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely. Yes. Would I want one? Sure, if the option was a if my if I the option was a fusion versus motion, and I felt that I could uh, follow, you know, some of the things. I mean, right now I'm blessed to be able to be as active as possible. But hey, 20 years from now, if those old ankle sprains that I had while playing ball creep up <laughs> on me, right. hey, yeah. I'm gonna find one of my colleagues to that total ankle in there. And so, yes, many of the ankle fractures that we fix end up needing total ankles. Yeah. Uh, I think that was great. You got to soak in all this knowledge while I had the chance. I really appreciate you coming to speak with us today. Uh, yeah, thank you for being a guest. And uh, just in case, how can the people reach you if they want to reach you and kind of find out more more about Dr. Stewart? Absolutely. They can go to resurgence.com, um, and I have my, uh, my website there. Uh, we do a lot of things in the community as well. Um, I would encourage any of the young orthopedic surgeons to, you know, that old saying, um, to, uh, too much has been given, much is expected. So um, we are truly blessed to be able to do what we do and always try to get back. And, uh, you know, go birds. All right, guys, thank you for listening to episode one of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. And for show notes, go to nailedittortho.com. And do not forget to subscribe. We are nothing without you guys. All right. Drop a note. Uh, leave an email at uh, nailedittortho at gmail.com. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Take care.